Howdy, July church family. It is July, I know choir's off. We're just grateful that anybody came. Uh, <clears throat> uh, no, it's funny, in church life, I'm pretty sure every church you go to, July is just universally the, the low attendance month at church because it's, uh, I guess it's, there's a couple week break in July where there's a little window that families can travel without any extracurricular summer things or school things. I mean, goodness, uh, sports and extra band and all that starts up band. I know schools that start band July 20th. I mean, it's crazy, which is miserable. So wouldn't take it. Appreciate you being here. Hey, before we go into the Word tonight, I do like for us to just take a moment. And if uh, one person at your table would volunteer to pray aloud, uh, our students made it safe and sound and they're at camp and Matt sent me some update pictures and um, but I just would love for us uh, to just pray for our students tonight while they are at camp. So if one person at your table would be willing to pray aloud, and then as it uh, seems like uh, we're dying down in prayer, I will, cl- I will pray for us, and then we'll, we'll uh, turn to the uplifting book of Judges. Uh, <laughs> so anyways, all right, one of you will pray, and then, and then I'll, I'll come in and pray for us here in a moment. Father, we come before your throne, and we are so very thankful for the safety of travel you have given um, our students and volunteers as they've made it out to camp. And Lord, as they're out there, uh, just again, we just ask, um, we know your heart, we know your desire um, to, to move and work and act in the lives of people, and we know your desire to do that in the heart of um, the students who are there, and we just ask that um, you would move in a mighty way, but that they would be responsive to you. And that, God, they would see you clearly, that they would know you clearly. Lord, there's nothing magical about camp. But as they are out, as they are away, as they are with one another, may their hearts be inflamed for you. If there are any of our students who don't know you, then, God, may they hear your gospel in clarity. Holy Spirit, may they receive your conviction. And, Father, may they respond in faith um, to your salvation. I continue to give Matt wisdom, our leaders wisdom, just keep everybody healthy as they are out there. And um, God, we just look forward um, to hearing what you have done because we know you are on the move. So we lay them in your hands. Fathers, we open up your word tonight. May you, just as we're praying for those at camp, may you do the same in our lives. May we not take it for granted. It's July, it's a Wednesday, and you are still God on your throne wanting to move and your word is still good. So Lord, may we have eyes to see and ears to hear, and may your will be done. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, we are <clears throat> walking through the story of Scripture, and uh, as, we, as we come to tonight, if you, go, you can go ahead and, and turn to Judges in your Bible. We're going we're gonna to get through Judges and Ruth and, and close out the pre-kingdom days of the Old Testament, uh, as in the uh, monarchy of of Israel. And when we come to the book of Judges, I just kind of give you a couple background uh, information things. One, the book of Judges is written from what we would call a prophetic viewpoint. And what we mean by that is it's written from a viewpoint where we are, we are calling out sin. We are seeing God's movement to discipline that sin. We are seeing a response to that discipline, a, a call for deliverance. It's written from this prophetic viewpoint, speaking God's truth to God's people. It's clearly written after the events have taken place. You don't, you don't hear any first-person plurals, we saw this. It's written after the events have taken place. Uh, because of the way they're connected, there are many who believe the books of Judges and Ruth were, Ruth were originally one, uh, one writing. Uh, they could be, and, and if they are, then Ruth would come in at the end after uh, 20-some-odd chapters of awfulness. Ruth would offer four chapters of hope, especially with how we'll see it ends where it mentions that she is the grandmother of David. At the same time, whether they are or not, they're both there. There are many. Uh, technically, uh, both works are anonymous. And again, just reminds you what that means. That means the, whoever wrote them doesn't tell you who they are in the actual writing in the way that, like Paul says, I, Paul, write this to you. 
tradition has held, Jewish tradition and, and, and church history tended to follow suit, has held that Samuel, and there's a lot of things that would lead you to believe that, Samuel is the one who authored both Judges and Ruth. And if Samuel is the author, that means it was written sometime in between 1050 and 1000 BC, which puts, uh, which puts uh, then the, uh, the events of the book of Judges. Sorry, let me back up. That's when it was written in the book of Judges. You're going to read it through, and this is helpful to follow and understand. You and I would have a, have a tendency to read it through and go, wow, that's, that seems like a lot. What a busy couple years. Well, let's try it. The book of Judges from chapter 1 to the end covers 410 years. It's a 410-year period the book of Judges is describing. And in that time, uh, in the time frame of what it's describing, you're going to see world events like the Trojan War take place. You're going to see that's going to be the period when on a global stage, Egypt is going to decline from being the superpower of the day that they were when, uh, when you're reading the book of, of Exodus. And so when we walk through the book of Judges, it's, you've, got, um, you've got essentially a threefold division. Chapters 1 and 2 give you the reason for the Judges. Chapters 3 through 16 give you the rule of the judges. So 1 and 2, the reason for judges, the reason for the judges. 3 through 16, the rule of the judges. And then 17 through 21, you can, you can phrase it this way, and I got these out of a book. I didn't make these up, by the way. Uh, the ruin of the judges. I'm not ruined so much that um, all the judges end up in a horrible heap, but just showing the fallout of where Israel is at. So uh, Judges 1 and 2, look with me here in chapter 1. Now it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight for them? Now understand the difference that this is for the people of God. Uh, they, have, they have walked under, and let me do my math, probably somewhere for about 70 years, somewhere around 70 years, they have always been led as a people by a God-appointed, anointed, singular leader. So they had Moses, and Moses would go up on the mountain. Moses would go into the Holy of Holies. Moses would meet with God on behalf of the people. Moses would come out. Moses would lead the people. Moses uh, is not allowed in the promised land. He dies on the eastern side of the, of the Jordan. And then you get uh, Joshua. And again, Joshua, you see his interactions with the Lord. So now there is no singular leader. It is the, the people of Israel coming and, and playing out. So all of the things we saw when you walk through Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus, all of the laws and the way the Levites fits and the priests and all of that, all of that has come together. And so the people are inquiring of the Lord. The Lord says, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have handed the land over to him. So the people come, hey, Lord, what should we conquer next? Now, what should we conquer next? So what do you mean by that? Let me remind you what we saw last week in Joshua 13. In Joshua 13, this comes at the end of the, the first conquest, and it says this, Joshua was old and advanced in years when the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. Which just, I love the, that means he was old and feeling it because there's double repetition there. A very large amount of the land remains to be possessed. This is the land that remains, all the regions of the Philistines and all of those of the Gershurites, uh, the five governors of the Philistines, that is the Gazite, the Ashdodite, the Ashkelon, uh, Ashkelonite, the Gittite, the Ekronite, and the Avite. Uh, and then he drops down and he says, oh, the land that belongs to Sidonians, and he names that, the land of the Gabalite, names that, uh, and he goes on, the uh, Lebo Hamath. He names these various lands that remain unconquered. Now, these remain unconquered at the old age of Joshua and the direction of the Lord, okay? So when you come in here and you see the people of Israel going, Lord, who shall go up? Where shall we go? What should we do? It's because all of the land that's been apportioned, these tribes, some of them, there's still land they need to go conquer that God has given them as an inheritance. So that's why they're asking uh, the Lord says, Judah shall go up. And then look in verse 8 with me. The sons of Judah, or sorry, um, yeah, verse 8. Then the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. So I told you last week that Jerusalem is not 
fully belonging to Israel until David. And that's still true because you'll look at verse 21 talking about Benjamin, but the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Now, how do you put those together? I can't totally tell you other than Judah. Jerusalem sits on the border of Judah and Benjamin, which by the way, Rob, do we have the ability to put any of the maps up from last week? Is that easy or not easy? I meant to ask you that, but forgot because my brain's all over the place these days. If you can pull it up, awesome. If not, no worries. Uh, but on the border, and Judas come in, they sack Jerusalem, they burn it to the ground. Uh, but in doing that, obviously, you've got some period of time elapse or something, even though they conquer it, they're not inhabiting it, and the people that are there remain. And those people, the Jebusites, will remain until David makes war with them, and Benjamin just lives alongside of them. But look with me at... Um, Verse 27, as far as, remember, at this point, Judges starts, we know there's unconquered land. It's because Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord's got, this at the Lord's hand. But some unconquered land was not the result of that. Look at verse 27. But Manasseh did not take possession of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. So the Canaanites persisted in living in this land. And it came about when Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. So here you have an instance Here's these lands Manasseh is supposed to conquer. Awesome. And we can go, Rob, let's go to uh, the, the second to last map will be the one we can jump in on. So you've got these lands to conquer, but here you find out Manasseh, for whatever reason, didn't do it. And in not doing it, they have left, you notice who it says, the Canaanites. And even when they were strong enough, they could easily have done it. They didn't kick the Canaanites out. Instead, they enslaved them, which is a prohibition in covenant law back from Sinai. By the way, and we'll see this, well, we'll just drop down. Let's see here. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from the gods of the peoples who were around them. They bowed down to them, so they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. Now, where, or sometimes you'll see that Asherah. Where do Baal and Asherah come from? The Canaanites. Leaving the Canaanites in the land is what opens the door for the primary source of idolatry, won't be the only, but the primary source of idolatry and conflict you're going to watch take place for the next several hundred years, even beyond the book of Judges. So the rest of chapter one there, 27 through 36, is all these lands that the tribes did not conquer, not because God failed to direct them to, not because these are lands they just, for whatever reason, didn't just go. Maybe, maybe they got scared. Maybe they just got comfortable. I don't know. This land's pretty good. I don't really feel like going out and fighting war. I feel like just being done. There's a variety of reasons it could be. We don't know. You can interject and certainly find application, but they don't do it. So look with me at the beginning of chapter two. Now the angel of the Lord came from Gilgal to Bakim, and he said, I have brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land, which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall not make a covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this thing you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they will become like thorns in your sides and your gods will be a snare to you. And when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people raised their voices and wept. So they named that place Bakim, and there they sacrificed to the Lord and, uh, um, Bakim means weepers, place of weeping. So they don't conquer these people like the Lord has said. They don't tear down the altars. They don't do away with their religion like the Lord has said. And so God confronts the people of Israel and there's a response of weeping there. Now, when you get to chapter two, verse six, it's a little flashback. So if this is, if you're thinking of a, of a uh, 26 episode TV series, here you get to an episode, you're like, wait a minute, this doesn't seem to fall in order. Yeah, it's a flashback. 
And here's how you know it's flashback. When Joshua had dismissed the people, well, Joshua, already, we already told he was dead, so it's flashback. But this is key. When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went, each to his inheritance, to take possession of the land. So there comes a point. We saw that at the end of Joshua. Joshua challenges them, uh, choose, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Know that if you serve the Lord, if you agree to serve the Lord, it is a weighty, serious deal, and God does not joke around with what his commands are. And they say, we get it. We're going to serve the Lord. He dismisses them from that moment. They all go back, and you can see this, this map here is, uh, is the tribal allotments of, and most of you've got Bible, if you've got maps in the back of your Bible, you'll have this map. It's the tribal allotments. He says, go to your lands, take possession, live in it. And you can see where it's all at. They're going to go live in it to then continue to conquer and take possession of that which God has promised them. That's what he dismisses them to do. Verse seven, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at age 110. And then look at verse 10. Uh, oh, so here's what it tells you. All of the people who were of that generation, who Joshua led into the promised land, all of their days, the people worshiped and served God. All of the elders who survived Joshua, all of their days, the people worshiped and served the Lord. Verse 10, and that generation also were gathered to their fathers and another generation rose up after them who did not know the Lord, nor even the work which he had done for Israel. Well, how do you get to they did not know the Lord? Well, you've really got one of two options. Either it's perfectly valid that they did not know the Lord in terms of they just chose to reject. They saw the other pleasures of the world. They saw the comfort and they chose to go that way. Or it's also possible that a generation who faithfully worshiped God failed to pass down the faith because how is the faith passed down? What is the command in Deuteronomy chapter six? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall bind these things on your head. You shall wrap them around your neck. You shall put them on your doorpost. You will talk about them when you wake up, when you go down at the dinner table, when you're taking a walk, when you're somehow the faith has failed to transfer. And then you get to verse 11, which we already saw. Then the sons of, evil, of, of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, they abandoned the Lord. The anger of the Lord burned against them. He handed them over to plunderers. They plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand against their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. As the Lord had spoken and just as the Lord had sworn to them, so they were severely distressed. And you say, wait a second. So God's, he, he said this, he's doing this. And you can write this down, but I, I believe I mentioned it. If you go back and look at Deuteronomy chapter 28, it spells out the consequences. This is in the covenant relationship of God and Israel. It spells out the consequences. Verse 15, if it shall come about, you do not obey the Lord your God to be careful to follow all his commandments and statutes. I'm commanding you today that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed will you be in the city and cursed will you be in the country. Cursed will be your basket and your kneading bread. Cursed will be the children of your womb and the produce of the ground, the newborn of your herd and the offspring of your flock. Cursed you will be when you come in. Cursed you will be when you go out. The Lord will send against you curses, panic, and rebuke, and everything you undertake to do. And then you can drop down later on in that passage and says, the Lord, listen to this, as this applies to what we've been looking at to, at Habakkuk. If you continue in this, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you don't understand, a nation with a defiant attitude, who will have no respect for the old, nor show favor to the young. Furthermore, it will eat the offspring of your herd, the produce of your ground, until you are destroyed. A nation will leave you with no grain, no wine, no oil, nor the firstborn. It goes on to describe this nation. It says in verse 58, you should be careful to follow the words of the law that are written in this book. Um, to fear this honored and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will, will bring extraordinary plagues on you and your descendants and severe and lasting plagues, miserable chronic sickness. And on the next side, it says, and you will be few in number, whereas you were as numerous as the stars in heaven because you did not obey the voice of the Lord. So when it says that these things were spoken of by the Lord, it's not as if the people went, well, we don't, we just kind of want to do it. God, how could you, God's already specified out for them as a people. If you break the covenant, I will be against you. And you go, well, why would God be against them? Because God is a God who is gracious and compassionate and abounding in loving kindness. 
Because God is a God who knows that the path of sin is the path of death. God is a God who, as a holy God, is completely and totally opposed to everything about the path of sin and death. And to watch the people he has entered into a covenant relationship with walk down that path and go, well, I'm not going to mess with it, would be the most unloving, unjust thing to do. Instead, justly, he will deal with their sin and lovingly, he will bring pain, hardship and suffering, not because he is cruel, but to break the blindness of sin and bring them back to himself. And he will. And that's what you see happening here. You see that the Lord's allowing other people to come in to distress them, to bring hardship. And then look at verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they committed infidelity with other gods and bowed down to them. Verse 18, when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity, that is compassion, by their groaning because of those who tormented and oppressed them. But it came about when the judge died that the people of Israel would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods and serve them and bow down to them. And so what you find now in those first two chapters... Here's the reason for the judges. The judges are instruments of God to come in, to call out Israel's sin, to act, as we'll see in a second in these cycles, to supernaturally deliver deliver, uh, Israel from those oppressing them. And then there will be a time where the people of Israel go, okay, we're going to walk, but then the cycle will repeat over. The cycle will repeat over and over. In fact, in the book of Judges, we we track track six different cycles of, of this taking place. Now, look with me at chapter three here. And this corresponds to Joshua 13. I'm, I need to mention it. Uh, it's a little out of order, but I need to mention it before we move on. Now, now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all the Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it previously. Names the nations. We've already read their names from Joshua 13. It says in verse 4, they were left to test Israel by them to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers through, uh, through Moses. So here's, here's why I read that. There's this interesting reality. Initially, there is unconquered land. Joshua's old. He's not going to lead him to conquer it. But there's another reason. God has left not some of the land unconquered because he wants to raise up the younger generations to learn how to trust him, right? Remember the first battle, the battle of Jericho. The people didn't run in with swords. They walked around a wall. Every day, once a day, they got their steps in. And the last day they walked around it seven times and really got their steps in and the trumpet players blared and they shouted and then the walls fell down, right? Because God was teaching them, I'm not just bringing you in to possess the land, but as I bring you in to possess the land, the gift that I have given you, every aspect of how I'm going to do it is going to teach you that it is not by your strength, not by your might, not by your intellect, not by your plans, not by your power, but my, by grace, by my power, by my strength, by my plans, you must walk humbly and obediently with me. And God left land unconquered so that those next generations would two things. One, learn how to walk with God, Two, would learn how to fight because this was a day and age where you were going to have to know how to fight. And I bring that up to say, when it comes to following God, God is very intricate in his plans to grow and raise and train his people. It's not just Joshua's old, so we'll leave this land unconquered, we'll raise it. No, God was intentional. I want to see if the people after, will they honor my word? I'm going to teach them to honor my word. I'm going to teach them how to fight and to fight my way, not the world's way. I'm going to, and the same thing is true in our lives. There is no aspect of the journey of spiritual growth God takes us on as his covenant people, as believers, that is ever just idle time. All of it is intricately intricately purposeful in the hands of our God. The question is, how do we respond? Look how they respond. Verse 5, chapter 3, the sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So they didn't drive them out. They lived amongst them. 
And they took their daughters for themselves as wives. So they married with those who worshiped and gave their own daughters to their sons and they served their gods. And so we come to uh, now the cycle of the judges. And so chapter nine or chapter three, nine through 14 is the first judge, uh, Othniel. He's going to, they're going to be, uh, uh, Israel's going to be attacked from the north by, by uh, Mesopotamia, and he is going to be raised up. Verse 10, the spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. When he went to war, the Lord handed over him. So the people of God have worshiped the Baals. They're now oppressed because God is, God is using pagan, wicked, violent peoples to distress them in order to break them and humble them. They cry out for deliverance. God raises up a judge, this first judge, Othniel. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. This would be the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And this is key. The Holy Spirit comes upon him, not in him, which is a difference for you and I. You and I will read every one of these judges. The Spirit rested upon them, and they did powerful things. But the Spirit doesn't rest upon you and I on the other side of the cross. The Spirit enters in, lives in us, and seals us forever which means the spirit living inside of us today is far greater than being one back then on whom the spirit, the spirit merely set upon. So we see this first judge, nothing major there. Then we see Ehud and Eglon. When the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for him. Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. And this is a key detail because most people are right-handed, and back then, if you were left-handed, there was a lot of shame that came with that, and, and you're, you're an outcast, you're an oddball, and here you see God taking someone that society looks as an oddball, but God was very intentional in how he created him, because look at this. Now, he had made a sword with two edges, a cubit in his length, and he stopped, and he strapped it on his right thigh under his cloak. Then he came to Eglon, the king of Moab. Moab is is assaulting Moab's down there underneath the red Reuben. Moab's assaulting Israel. They've cried out. He goes to the king Eglon, and it makes the statement in verse 17. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And it came about when he had finished presenting the tribute, Ehud sent away the people who had, who had carried the tribute. He turned his back. He said, I have a secret message for you, king. And the king said, silence. I want to hear this. And everybody left. And Ehud came to him, and while I was sitting in the cool roof chamber alone, Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he got up from his seat. And Ehud reached out with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and he thrust it into Eglon's belly. And the hilt of the sword also went in after the blade, and the fat of Eglon closed over the blade because he did not pull the sword out of the belly, and the refuse came out. It's like the ultimate stereotypical uh, junior high boy story. This guy's huge, and he, his, his belly swallowed the sword, and refuse came out. But here's the whole deal. If, if, if Ehud goes in as a right-handed man, if he's got any security, they're going to know where to look. But if you're left-handed, they would not look for the weapon on your right thigh because no one's left-handed. Because Ehud's left-handed, he's able to get before the king with the weapon and bring deliverance at the Lord's hand. And so you see God use Ehud, raise up Ehud, someone who would be an outcast, uh, and uh, there's a, then there's a period of rest after that. And remember, remember the cycle. Israel walks in disobedience. God brings discipline. Israel cries out for deliverance. God raises up a judge deliverer. There is deliverance. Then Israel walks with God, and then the cycle repeats, and the next generation falls away. Now, this is verse 31. It's interesting. I didn't do intense study on this, and I hadn't, hadn't taught through this passage before, but it's one verse. After Ehud comes Shamgar, He's not ever called a judge, but he's sometimes called a minor judge. And based on his, his name and the fact that he's the son of Anath, there's some who think that he's actually a foreigner that God uses who struck and killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. It's one verse, Shamgar. You might want a, a grandson named that one day. I don't know. <laughs> then you come to Judges 4. This is the third cycle, Deborah and Barak, the sons of evil, uh, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud, so he sold them into Jabin, king of Canaan. And remember, all of this, Canaan wouldn't even be there if they followed the word of the Lord. It says, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife, uh, was judging Israel at the time. So she's, as a judge, she used to sit under the palm tree. And here's what's going to go on. I'm going to summarize this for the sake of time. Deborah delivers news to Barak. God, Barak, God's going to use you to bring deliverance. 
And Barack says, yeah, I'll go, but only if you go with me, because he's a little unsure about this whole thing. And so she said, okay, I'll go with you. But if I go with you, God's going to give the glory and credit for the victory, not to you, but to a woman. And understand the interplay of that in that society. That would be, I mean, that's preposterous to back in, back in those times. It's not preposterous to God. So Barack will go. They will bring victory. Of course, this is the story where as, as the king, uh, the Philist, as the king of uh, the Canaanites is on the run, he will eventually find a, a girl in a tent and he needs he thinks he's safe, needs to sleep. He goes in, goes for a snooze. She grabs a tent peg and drives it through his skull. And uh, God brings deliverance through there. Now, so, and here's the irony in scripture. Barak is named, but the woman is never named. So Lord, Barak, the glory that should be yours for standing with Christ, is going to go to someone else whose, whose name is not even mentioned. And, and there's part of what's going on here. Uh, the account is not just showing in this passage that their worship, that Israel's worshiping. Remember, every generation, every cycle, Israel comes back even worse than the prior. So you go back to creation. There is a clear call upon uh, upon um, upon males to lead their families. We, we we talk about spiritual leadership and what that falls in the husband and things like that. And in, in Israel's society, as as a theocracy walking in there, that would be heightened on a national level. What this is also highlighting is the fact that you have a lack of male leadership in Israel at the time, which is why Deborah's judging, which is why Barak refuses to pull through, which is why. The, the idolatry has gotten so bad that even on a national level, men are refusing to stand up and actually be the people God's called them to be. And here's, so here's a couple of things that go with that. Just so you're aware, there are some who would say, well, Deborah was a judge, therefore women can be pastors. That is a massive misnomer. That's like saying, well, if Deborah's a judge, so women can be pastors. Moses went to the Holy of Holies and his face shined with God. So don't you dare ever question what your pastor says. He's flawless. Being a judge in the Old Testament and judges is not equal to the office of pastor, overseer, presbyter, elder, whatever biblical term you want to use in the New Testament. This is a unique office. So that, and, I, and you say, well, I've never heard that, Pastor. Great. I've had hundreds of college students who've brought it up. So that's why I'm telling you. That's one of the things that's getting tossed around out there. Bethany can give you even more. Two, what it also shows you, though, is because you've got obviously in Israel, Barak's an example. Now, before we bash Barak too much, in Hebrews 11, he gets credited as a man of great faith. So it's interesting how all that plays out. But what you do have is this. God will use anybody who's willing to be used. So on the flip side, while on one hand we affirm Scripture certainly limits the office of, of pastor to men uh, in light of the way God's family is to operate, it also doesn't mean that God won't use and can't use women. He delights to use women just as much as he delights to use men. And there's a famous, everybody knows the name Lottie Moon if you're deeply Southern Baptist. It's the name of our Christmas offering. And Lottie Moon was out there in the frontier of China preaching the gospel and sharing the gospel with all these people. And back home, the theologian said, well, that's not okay. You're a woman. And uh, and so she's kind of feisty. She's real short and feisty. I don't know how much you know about Lottie Moon. And she ripped back and said, well, when you men come out here and share the gospel faithfully, I will happily take my place as a woman. <laughs> Point being, no one's being faithful to go, and God will absolutely take a woman who's willing to go and use her. And so you see that interplay in this, in this passage, and those are just some things to be, be aware of. After, after you have Deborah and Barak, you get to the fourth cycle, which is, of course, Gideon and the Midianites. Gideon is of the tribe of Manasseh. And we, of course, we know Gideon for very much his, his fearfulness, his intrepidation at God's call to bring deliverance. And of course, you see God initially, call, he's, he's found hiding in a basin. You see God's initial call um, and, and his, the use of the fleece and, you know, okay, he's trying to get confirmation of, of it. You also notice that once he's willing to buy that the Lord's called him, verse 27, Gideon's going to tear down the altars, but he's going to do it at night because he's afraid of his father's household. We know this for Gideon. Here's, here's the powerful thing. God can take, God can take a social outcast, a left-handed man and use them. God can take a woman who would not have been the epitome of uh, in, in, in ancient times, everything went glory and honor the man and use a woman who's willing to be used. God can take someone who's warrior and fearful and use them too. Every one of these judges has some kind of, when I say a flaw, not necessarily, some of them it's a sin issue. Some of them it's a outcast of society because a society rules issue. Every one of them has some kind of flaw, yet God uses them. 
Uh, and of course, Gideon, and I, and I think about Gideon, Gideon begins to get the army together. Look at chapter seven. Um, so 22,000 from the people returned. Uh, so initially 32,000 show up, 22,000 go back. There's still 10,000. So think about Gideon. If you're prone to be a worrier, you got to go to battle with the powerful Midianites. All right, I got 32,000. Oh, wait. God, uh, oh, wait. God, God came to me and said, the people with me are too many for me to... Look at this, verse 2. The people with you are too many for me to hand Midian over to you. You got too many warriors for me to act. Um, otherwise, Israel... Look at this. Otherwise, Israel would become boastful, saying, my own power is delivering me. If I send you into battle with 32,000 people and you win... Israel's going to think it's because they're strong and not because I'm strong. And I'm not about to give my glory to that and, and, and then miss this. So 22,000 leave. We got 10,000 left. So I can kind of see Gideon going, okay, okay, Lord, I'll, I'll trust you. We got, still got 10,000. Then the Lord said to Gideon in verse four, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water. I will test them for you. And of course, this is when they take them down to the water. He gives them the test. And 300 men, verse eight, uh, <clears throat> Let me see. 300 men are the ones who are left. And God says, all right, now we got it. Now just put yourself in Gideon's shoes, church family. Wow, man, look at this army. 32,000 feel pretty good. Oh, we're going to call it down to 10. Oh, 300. 300 to 10,000. That's a big difference. That's a massive difference. I mean, put that in context for you. That's like going, it's like walking into Saddleback Church or, late, uh, you know, those big super mega churches where they have 10,000 seat auditoriums. I'm going to put it this way. I know we got some Aggies in the room. That's walking into a full capacity Reed Arena basketball game at Texas A&M down to uh, a little less than what we had last Sunday at church. I mean, just, just for picture, this, this, the size differential, I mean, and God goes, okay, now you're good. Now you're good. And of course they go in, of course the irony is that the battle ultimately, they don't even fight. They go in at the right moment, start ringing their, ringing their, uh, their chimes and the enemy in the confusion in the dark kills themselves. Because God, again, the way God works, God delights to be the one who's deliverer because God is up to something intentionally and in what he's doing in the life of Israel and same in our lives. And there's gonna be times in our lives where God calls us to follow him into things where we're gonna to have to be willing to follow him into things vastly outnumbered. Whatever that means, I don't, literal or, or metaphorical. Um, and so you see that there. We see the fifth cycle, just by the way too. Well, never mind, we won't go there. Fifth cycle is Jephthah, uh, Jephthah and the Ammonites, and Jephthah's known for making the foolish vow. God, if you bring deliverance through me, the first thing that walks out of my house, I'll sacrifice to you. God brings deliverance to him first, not a thing that walks out of his house, but his daughter. And so one of the big debates in Judges is does, does Jephthah, does he actually follow through? It says he follows through on his vow, but does he actually kill her? Or does she simply just get pushed into permanent celibacy and virginity for all of her life. And there's really are discussions there. I tend to lean over to the side here that he did not actually sacrifice her, but this only because God would never be delighted by a sacrifice, even if you made a foolish vow of a human life. Uh, God condemns the sacrifice of human beings. So if, if Jephthah did follow through in that sacrifice, and that shows you the incredible foolhardiness on his behalf because the Lord would condemn the sacrifice anyways. But it's an interesting little tale there with Jephthah. We don't have more time to go into that. The sixth cycle is the one probably most people know more than any from, uh, from Judges, which is Samson. Samson and the Philistines. Uh, Samson will serve over a period of 40 years. The in, uh, enemies, the Philistines. Interestingly enough, Samson's of the tribe of Dan which we'll see in a moment, is the most pagan of all the tribes in Israel and, is, and will become synonymous. Uh, in, fa in fact, uh, there's, a, there's an organization that does a, it's called Impact, and it's a, it's a uh, if you're a freshman or transfer student in A&M, you come together, it's a three, four-day camp, and it's, it's designed to connect you to local believers as you come in and really to connect those students to local churches. It's a great thing, but the way they divide you up, they use the tribal names of Israel. Uh, they do not use Dan. 
because that's the reputation of Dan. Like you do not want to be associated with Dan because Dan's reputation is just pure wickedness and idolatry. But Samson's of Dan. Uh, they've already abandoned the rightful, the Dan, tribe of Dan's already abandoned their rightful land. So they're living in land that, that, that kind of think of it like a displaced person's camp. There's a, there's a, a, a supernatural visit to his parents. He's going to be a Nazarite, which means as a Nazarite, he can't touch dead things. His hair's got to grow out and he can't ever have anything of the fruit of the vine, AKA grapes, um, which as a teenager, I loved the whole grow your hair long thing. I was great with that from Nazarite, but I could never survive not being able to eat grapes. I just, grapes are wonderful. Um, Bethany buys like two bags of grapes and they're gone this is the night, that night. Uh, I just, I love, if someone asked me Sunday, what's your favorite food? Cause I hate hot dogs. And I said, I love fruit, just any kind of fruit. It's great. Uh, you didn't need to know that. Um, Samson, though, Samson's going to step in. And again, Samson is, I taught, I taught through Samson's life with students uh, back, back uh, last summer and, um, or summer prior. And I just, as I went through Samson's life, he is just a train wreck. He's a train wreck. We're going to see three different women in his life. All three of them are of pagan peoples that he's not supposed to be interacting with. The first woman, he's going he's gonna to be super harsh with after... Um, if I remember right, he seeks to, uh, let me find it. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be that he, his father promises her to another man, and he comes in and ties a bunch of animals' tails uh, with torches and sets them loose and burns all their crops. I mean, it's just nutso stuff. He's going to touch dead because, and, and I didn't, never thought about this as a kid, with being a Nazarite, because I remember this cartoon we had of Samson, and, and it opens with, with them, the Philistines, marching him, and all of a sudden he sees as they're marching him this, this jawbone of an ox, and he picks it up and slays them all, and like, oh, it's incredible. Well, it was a violation of the vow to touch that jawbone, because a Nazarite should never have any contact with that of the dead. It's a violation when he goes to the, the lion and, and eats of the honey. Um, it's obviously a violation when to Delilah, he tells him, cut the hair and it won't be. Not only that, but we see him get plastered drunk in the narrative and he's not supposed to forget drunkenness. He's not even supposed to eat a grape. Yet we find a man that God uses. Now, God also allows him to experience um, the, the just rewards, if you will, of his sin. He gets caught by the Philistines. And then, of course, and it's interesting. Look at this in um, verse 28 of chapter 16. He's captured. Then it says, then Samson called to the Lord. In fact, if I remember right, that's, I think, the only place in Samson's narrative where he calls to the Lord. He struggles with pride. He calls to the Lord. Only after in that humility, calling to the Lord, eyes gouged out, weak as can be, Lord God, please remember me and strengthen me one last time that I may take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. And he's going to push the pillars down and his life will end and he will take out the Philistines. And this ends then the period, the six cycles of the judges. And you come into the chapter 17 through 21, the ruins, the ruin of the judges. And you're going to find in here, Dan, you're going to, and, and by the way, Chapter 17 through 21 aren't, if I remember correct, aren't in necessarily chronological order. They're kind of like the appendix at the end of the book with a variety of stories designed to show you some specific instances of just how bad things really are. The judges show you the cycle. They show you the cycle of the people's disobedience, but they don't get into the deep specifics of what the disobedience is. In chapter 17 through 21, you see what that looks like. You see the idolatry of, of the tribe of Dan and, and how they forsake their God-given land. You see in chapter 19, in one of just the worst uh, worst stories, a, a concubine of a Levite goes out. She's in the area of the tribe of Benjamin. Um, and ultimately, she is, she is going to be killed, raped, brutally raped and murdered by several men of the land. And the Levite finds he's, gonna, he's going to split her, her body up into multiple pieces, send those pieces out to the tribes of Israel as a rallying cry to come. And, and we've got to deal with this. And Benjamin goes, we're not going to deal with the people who do it. And so a war almost erupts where the tribe of Benjamin, if I remember right, the tribe of Benjamin is left with only 600 men at the end of the war. And by the way, if Benjamin's eradicated, there's no King Saul, you might go, well, Saul ended up pretty rough anyways. Okay, that's fine. 
There's no Mordecai and Esther, and there's no Paul. So God's grace in sparing Benjamin, even though their wickedness is on full display here, understand the ramifications of that for those who would come after. When you get to the end, though, this is all I want you to see. Chapter 21. Um, Chapter 21, verse 25. It's the last verse of the book. And this, if you want to know what is Judges about, this is it. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the book of Judges in a nutshell. And someone made the point as I was reading through some stuff, reading through some stuff today, that when it says that, in this, there's three different times it says, and in those days there was no king. It doesn't necessarily mean an advocacy for the king you're going to see when we get to 1 Samuel as far as a monarch, right? Is God not the king of Israel? In that day, God was not honored as king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Because if you remember, when you get to Samuel, when the people cry out for a king because they want to be like the other nations, God tells Samuel, Samuel, they've not rejected you in their their request. They're rejecting me. And that's the book of Judges in a nutshell. You find in the book of Judges, and and we've, we've gone in some parts in depth, some parts not at all, you find in the book of Judges human depravity on full display. You see sin on full display. You name it, it's in there. You see people rejecting God, and when you, they reject God, you see the fallout into all of their lives. And, and we were, uh, I was talking with someone earlier today, and we were talking about even, you know, as, as we've watched people react uh, post uh, the Roe versus Wade decision, um, and you see, I, I expect the lost world to react how they've reacted. That, I mean, like that was expected. What has been so added grievous is to watch how various parts of quote-unquote churches and believers have responded. And some of, some of the, the places, even on a denominational, and I'm not like, you don't, if you're not a Southern Baptist, I'm not going to like, God's kingdom is what we're about, not the Southern Baptist Convention. At the same time, to be a Baptist means something theologically. Every denomination holds various theology, and sometimes the differences in those theologies really do undercut what Scripture actually says. And when you start undercutting the Word of God, at some point down the line, your morals will corrode enough where you'll call wrong right and right wrong. And you see that in Judges. You see that in Judges. You see the clear allure. You can be of the people of God and be tempted by the things of the world. You can be of the people of God and you can look just like the world. Now, that's, don't take that too far because I also think if, if post-cross, if we're really saved, the Holy Spirit's going to be convicting the mess out of you if you go that direction and God will... But you see sinfulness. You also see this. You see God's grace and faithfulness magnified even greater than the sinfulness. Every generation kept rejecting God. But did God ever decide, I'm just done with you, Israel. I'm going to back off. You know what? I'm just going to wipe you all out. No. Every time the people finally turned the corner and said, God, we need you. We need you. We need you. You're the one who's going to save us. Bell's not going to do it. What did God do? Did he go, "Uh, cry a little louder, please? No. He raised up the judge. He empowered the judge. He brought deliverance. Because God is a faithful covenant-keeping God. He entered into a covenant relationship with the people of Israel, and he, they may fail their word, and if they fail their word, consequences will come, but he will not fail his word. And he is a God who is gracious, which means in our lives, we are in a covenant, not the old covenant, but the new covenant, found in Christ's blood. And in that covenant, we are in a personal relationship with God. And God is faithful. He is faithful when we're faithful. And according to Timothy, he is faithful even when we are faithless, for he cannot deny himself. Which means if someone is strayed and they really are a follower of Christ, you better believe God will be faithfully intervening in their life. Just like God will bring discipline through pagan nations invading Israel, so God will bring discipline in our lives in a variety of ways to bring us to our knees where we should have been the whole time and to return to him. We also find when you walk through here, we see God's intervention and and discipline and deliverance is kind of what I just mentioned. We see the need for godly leadership. People struggled 
without godly leadership. And you say, well, but, but God didn't raise up another singular. That's fine. Every one of those tribes had heads of households. Eight of those tribes, there was leadership of each tribe. Nowhere in any of theirs was there found to be godly leaders. And because there were no godly leaders, there was no one setting the pace. We also see a rejection of, uh, the, in fact, they didn't even, and part of the deal was they didn't need to have a single figurehead. They had a relationship with God and they didn't follow his leadership. We also see that the two sides of both the importance of the legacy of faith, but also the generational fade. This generation after Joshua and the elders, they walked with God all the days of their life. Then they died and went to their fathers and a new generation arose who did not know God. The reality is church family, and especially as we look, and I don't, I don't know that this is just based on age. I, I think you can be, it can be an age factor, but certainly because you can be older and not mature in Christ and you can be younger and mature in Christ, but this is the reality. For those of us who've walked with Christ for a long time and walked maturely, there is a call to disciple those behind us. And it involves doing it in everyday life. It involves being faithful to what God's word has said, whether we feel it that day or not. Now, sometimes if we go, well, but sometimes we can lean over maybe to legalism at times. Yeah, but today we live in a day where we, we fall not into legalism, but into, well, we just don't really feel like it. Let me give you an example. This is a uh, guy who, I, I love Shane. He posts stuff on Twitter that you just want to say all the time. And uh, he just throws it out there, and I've seen this, but this is what he calls the four-generation fade, four generations. First generation, parents don't make church a high priority for the kids. Doesn't say they don't make it a priority, but church is just not a high priority. So those kids grow up, and they make it a less of a priority for their kids. Those kids grow up and make it no priority for their kids. Those kids grow up with no concept of God. Now, I'm not saying that you got to legalistically be at church every Sunday, but have we not watched that same four generation fade inside our own country? You want to know why Generation Z is the most unbiblical worldview generation? Could it be because rewind the clock, we began to operate more by what was convenient than by what was conviction? Because we began to operate by the word of the world and the whims of the world and what the world says we can do than what the Lord calls us to be. There's a connection there. If you don't pass down the legacy of the faith, there will be a generational fate. How do you correct a generational fate? You start to pass down the legacy of faith, which by default means we as a church, one of our great battles in front of us that we are gonna have to follow the Lord and his timing and his way on is how do we as a church that is predominantly older pass the faith down to generations that are younger, not neglecting the older generations. We want to reach anybody and everybody. I don't care what generation you're from. Because God made you and God wants to know you and you need to know God and walk with him well. But specifically how we pass down our faith is one of the greatest, and it's not just our church, it's a lot, it's any church. But we've got to be aware of that. We've got to know what's there. So, all right, since there's no choir, I'm going to take two more minutes and tell you about Ruth because it's a short book and we'll end on a nice little note of hope. When you come to the book of Ruth it, Ruth, it really reads, there's four parts, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four. What's the structure, pastor? Chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four. It's all you need to know. Chapter one, we see love's resolved. Ruth's determined. Uh, her mother, her husband's died. Her brother-in-law's died. Her father-in-law's died. She goes with her mother-in-law. Her mother-in-law says, hey, y'all need to go back. By the way, her mother-in-law, Naomi, she's an Israelite whose sons married women of Moab. So they walked in sin with God and married people they shouldn't have married. Because Ruth is not an Israelite. She's of Moab, is what we find. Uh, and so, some would even speculate their sudden deaths could be a sign of, of discipline and punishment for their disobedience, but doesn't say that, so we're not going to jump to that. But they did die. Ruth's sister-in-law goes back to her people. Ruth says, Naomi, I'm going with you, and your God will be my God. I will, I'm, I am, I'm laying down my family. I'm laying down my culture. I'm laying down everything. I'm going with you. Your God will be my God. That's where I'm going. So they go. So here's the contrast. The people of Israel and Judges, God, we don't want you. Their gods will be our God. Come to Ruth, one of those pagan peoples, your God will be my God. 
Chapter 2, love's response, Ruth's devotion. There's a providential meeting with Boaz, whose name means in him is strength. You see God's sovereignty here in, the, in, the, in, in directing things. And think about the national level. Ruth, by the way, takes place during the book of Judges during that time frame. So think about the chaos we've just seen in Judges, and God's dealing with on that scale, but God is focused on just as much as seeing that Ruth walks in the right field at the right time to meet Boaz. There's no detail about our lives too small for God's providence and sovereignty. Even when he's dealing with all the craziness in the world, he is a God big enough to handle all. We see in chapter 3, love's requests. Uh, Ruth goes and, and she follows the advice of her mother-in-law and um, lays the request because in her day, you need a kinsman redeemer, one of uh, the responsibility. Naomi would have no property. It was sold due to foreclosure and you would have to find the next of kin who would have the responsibility to buy back and to provide. And uh, so the next of kin, what it was actually, we'll find out in chapter four is another. It's going to fall to Boaz. Ultimately, you get to chapter 4. Boaz receives her request. You get to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, Boaz goes to the one next in line. He passes. So Boaz takes Ruth, marries Ruth, and acts as the kinsman redeemer. And that's one of the great, the great theme of Ruth is the idea of the redeemer. And, and Christ is the redeemer. And it's built on the, on the idea of chesed, loving kindness. It's God's covenant faithfulness. Even when there's great unfaithfulness, it's his steadfast, loyal love. We see redemption appears more than 20 times. And the idea of, of redemption is one is on the seller's block and someone steps up, pays the price, brings them out of the seller's block of slavery and into freedom. We see Boaz as a picture of redemption. We see God's sovereignty working out his plan, responding to prayer, placing people together. And we see God's heart for the nations. Oh, Israel's God's chosen geopolitical people. But God will take anybody who will say, your God will be my God. Even if they're from Moab, even if they're a prostitute of Jericho. We see God's heart for the nations. It says in chapter 16, uh, verse 16 of, or verse 13 of chapter four. So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife. They had relations. The Lord enabled her to conceive. She gave birth to a son. And then you get to chapter 16, then Naomi took the child, lay, this is uh, mother-in-law, took the child, laid him in her, in her lap and became his nurse. And the neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And so all of a sudden you see God didn't just take, in the midst of the unfaithfulness of his people, God didn't just take someone from a, a woman from a pagan nation, destitute with nothing, sovereignly placed her, who's willing to follow a woman who's willing to follow him. He doesn't just take her and graft her in. All of a sudden, she is not just in the people of Israel, just like Rahab. She is in the lineage of the Messiah. It means Jesus, and, and to a certain level, carried, carried the genes, uh, the genes of Ruth. Again, we see the heart. Now these are the, the, the and you see this Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron Ram, Ram, uh, and, and they go on down these lines, and it ends on, an, on an, and we say on a, on a notion of hope because it's written after the fact. Obviously, there's a clear call in Judges: don't stray into idolatry, follow the Lord. But but if if it is written, especially by Samuel, the people would know who David is. So that note of in. Obed, Jesse, and Jesse, David, there's the notion of hope. Even as bad, as horrible as things can get, even as much as rebellion reigns, God is still at work and he will be faithful to his every word. Just like he raised up David, so in the midst of a time when he hadn't been heard for 400 years, when, the, when Israel was occupied in the fullness of time, so God raised up his son, Christ. And so, church family, in the fullness of time, so God is working now. And so, church family, in the fullness of time, he is coming back. So, appreciate you Let me go a couple minutes long because I wanted to get through that. So next week we can focus on the monarchy and look at First and Second Samuel. Appreciate you being here, be in prayer for our students, be in prayer for VBS. It's coming quick. And uh, we will see you Sunday. Stay cool. I recommend not hanging out outside between the hours of 8 a.m. and midnight. Uh, it's your, it's the, your pastoral advice for the day. Let me pray this out. Father, thank you for your word. May we be people 
who follow through on your word. God, may we not be people who, as you have called us, may we not be people who leave land unconquered. May we not be people who fall to the allure of idols. May we, but may we be people who follow your word, not because we're seeking to find righteousness on our own. That's legalism. But Lord, because you are our God. You are gracious, you are faithful, you are compassionate, you are redemptive, you are holy. May we follow you because of who you are, because who we know you to be. Lord, and may we do so with hope because you cannot lose. You've already won and we will see you win in the end. It's in your name we pray, amen.